listening to Flux Pod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This is the final episode of 2021. Not the final episode overall, though I will take a couple weeks off, a few weeks off. Uh, you know, I'll come back to you in the new year. Some cool new episodes. But this episode, we're talking to Daniel Ralston, an old friend of mine. He's got a really cool uh, podcast coming out soon. He'll talk a lot about that. It's a kind of an investigative uh, music thing. He'll explain it. Um, but we also talk a lot about his experience as a bartender in Los Angeles and just LA vibes and, you know, what Rod Stewart likes to drink. Um, we'll talk about Oasis. We'll talk about a bunch of stuff. But, uh, you know, it's just going to be a fun, cool hangout. And, you know, uh, if you want to hear more stuff, uh, more FluxPod stuff, hit the patreon patreon.com slash flux blog five dollars a month gets you four paywalled episodes uh that includes a whole backlog of stuff with a series about uh, youtube and sonic youth and uh, led zeppelin those are all the mini series and there's, there's a lot more mini series coming up and there's radio episodes and q a's and I, I sometimes i'll put up audio interviews i did years and years ago for different publications it's the raw audio uh, but you know you gotta you gotta pony up pony up five dollars for those uh but yeah here we go we're gonna talk to daniel ralston Uh, Daniel, can you tell the audience who you are and what you do? I I will do that. But Matthew, first of all, it's nice to hear your voice. Ah, oh, it's great to hear your voice too. Uh, Daniel and I have known each other for a long time. It's true. Spent time hanging out in, in New York and Los Angeles at different times. Uh, my name is Daniel Ralston. I'm a writer and a bartender. Uh, I tend to write about weird little corners of uh rock and roll history that nobody else is interested in and um but that always turns out that people are interested yeah um i wrote a story a few years ago about the band the zombies and zz top uh and a strange crossover that they had back in 1969 um which you can read about i guess you could just google fake zombies to find out about that if you want to read about it and um, I have spent the past couple of years working on another project that's coming out pretty soon about the disappearance of one of the members of the band Iron Butterfly. All right. So so without like giving away your whole show, like what happened there? And, and like and also, how did you find out about it? Sure. Um, well, I kind of found out about it the old fashioned way. I was sitting in a, fr- a bar with a friend and he said, did you ever hear about the guy from iron butterfly who disappeared and i said no and he said yeah i don't really know much about it but a friend told me this crazy story had happened out in malibu and i actually happened to be living in a guest room of somebody's house in malibu at the time this is back in 2017 so i came went home and i googled and i found out what i could which is that this guy philip taylor kramer who went by taylor kramer uh was the bass player in Iron Butterfly, not in their original run, but 
he was their bassist and singer in the mid seventies from 1974 to 1978. And after he left the band, he got a degree in aerospace engineering and ended up working for Northrop Grunman and was a defense contractor uh, for the U.S. military. And he worked on missile guidance systems. Wait, so it's not just uh, Jeff Skunk Baxter who's done a thing like this. There's Whoa. at least one other rock guy who has had this trajectory. And I'll tell you that me and my partner on this, a woman named Melissa Locker, we did reach out to Brian May uh, to be a consultant on this podcast we have coming out, but he declined. Uh, oh, there. Oh, yeah. Well, I don't think he's. Is Brian May work in defense after Queen? No, but he fancies himself an astrophysicist. And, okay, that that I know. But yeah, well, I, I know Jeff Scott Baxter was in a very similar line of work. I think he was with maybe it was Lockheed Martin. It was one of them. Anyway, yeah. so he didn't want to work in defense anymore, and he was kind of a he was kind of a hippie. Uh, to be honest, he was like. Originally, he was in a folk duo with his sister who opened for John Denver. Like, he's not the type who you would expect to work for the Defense Department. So he decided to start a company that became a leader in the CD-ROM industry in the late 80s and early 90s. Uh, That company was funded by Michael Jackson's brother, Randy Jackson. And the company did really well for a few years, and then it went bankrupt. And the same year it went bankrupt, he started telling people he had discovered the secret to teleportation. His his father was also a physicist, and they worked on this thing together. And when this guy, Taylor Kramer, started telling people he discovered teleportation, people believed him. And on February 12th, 1995... He was supposed to pick up a friend from LAX at the airport. He never showed up. He made 17 phone calls from the car phone inside his van. And the last call he made was to 911. And he said, my name is Philip Taylor Kramer, and I'm going to kill myself. OJ Simpson is innocent. They did it. And then he hung up the phone and nobody knew where he was for four years. (laughs) I mean, nice of him to get a word in on OJ. Well, it turns out the company that he started actually did some work around surveillance in the OJ trial. So uh, this is all happening right at the height of OJ mania. Oh, God. So, yeah. So so this is adjacent to the most Los Angeles story of all time. Sure. And let me also just tell you, it may sound like I'm going into detail. This is all in the Unsolved Mysteries episode. From 1999, uh, Taylor Kramer's sister and wife were interviewed on Oprah. This was a huge story. And then for 26 years, nobody really cared about it. And I started digging into it. And it turns out it's a little bit more complicated than the way that they wrote off his disappearance and eventual what was declared a suicide. But we have spoken to just about everybody who knew him, uh, including uh, the part that I think is the most interesting is that we talked to his daughter, um, who was about five years old when he disappeared, and she's now 30 years old and has a lot to say about what happened to her dad. And we found some 
uh, connections to things like organized crime. And uh, there's a lot more to the story. And we uh, have spent the past couple years putting the story together. Oh, my God. This is so enticing. I hope everyone listening to that feels enticed. We've just sort of been waiting to to hear some offers from people before we decide what we're going to do. So that's kind of where we're at. So so we're we're probably out in the first quarter 2022, I guess. Yeah, big quarter. <laughs> big quarter. We all love that. We love we love the thinking quarters, right? We love the thinking financial terms. Yeah. And um you know, the story came from me being told, you know, somebody told it to me at a bar. Um and like I said at the beginning, in addition to being a writer, I'm also a bartender. And I tend to hear a lot of great stories and crazy stories at the bar and sometimes it's busy and it's just too noisy and I have no time for people's stories. But when I heard this story, I just couldn't help but dig in. It truly is one of the craziest stories I've ever heard. So how did you end up becoming a bartender? Cause this is something that happened to you or well, happened. It's something you, you embarked on like relatively deep into life uh, when you were living in Los Angeles. And that's kind of like a, you know, a second act for you. Sure. I mean, when I first of all, I'm I'm 42 years old, and I also and I didn't start writing or making anything until I was 34, so I got kind of a late start at all this stuff, and I've always had a day job while I continued to either write stuff or make videos or whatever, um, because those things don't really pay any money in in 2021, so. Uh, I've always had to have a day job in New York. I worked as an office manager, did all kinds of stuff. And when I came out to Los Angeles, I ended up working on a documentary out in Malibu and renting this guest room and I needed to make extra money. So I went to work at a surf shop for a year, even though I had never surfed before. Um, but my neighbor across the street in Malibu owned the surf shop and he asked me to come work for him. And one day when I was in the bar, this guy uh, in the surf shop, this guy who ran the bar across the street came in. We kind of hit it off and he said, hey, man, I'm like desperately in need of a daytime bartender. It's a really easy shift. You kind of just have to stand there and it's going to pay, pay way better than the surf shop. I promise you. And it turned so out he, I he actually, just like the cut of your jib. Yeah. And, um, that guy's a really great, I, I learned from a really great bartender and bar manager how to do the job, right? Just to give you an example, like my first couple days, I kept leaving the ice scoop in the ice bin and he would just throw it on the floor and be like, you have to take it to the dish pit now to get washed because you cannot leave it in the ice. Hmm. So I, I learned how to run a bar really well. And that in the time that I was working at that bar in Malibu, um, it started to get some recognition as being like one of the better bars in Los Angeles. And by by 2020, it was named the best bar in California um, by Con. Oh, what's the I, name of the bar? It's called the Malibu Beach Inn. It's a very fancy hotel bar. And yeah, Condon asked travelers that it was the best bar in California. Oh, man. Wait, so, okay, so I know just from talking to you, you, you've had, like, celebrity clientele. Was that, like, mostly at that place? Yeah, pretty much just there. Okay. Um, and 
Do you feel comfortable mentioning any of the celebrity clientele? I've mentioned one of them before, which is Rod Stewart, who's a really yeah, cool guy. That's, uh, that, I was hoping you would say yeah. Rod Stewart. You, you know who else is really Cause... cool? I won't elaborate, but Pink is also very cool. Oh, okay. Wait, did you ever... I'm um, thinking of like famous Malibu residents. Did you ever get even a glimpse of Dylan? No. Um, I did see Neil Young driving with his son in a specially modified car that accommodated his son's wheelchair one time. I was like next to him on the highway. Oh, wow. Yeah. It must be so like there's so many like major rock stars who all this like all boomer rock stars who all this made their homes in Malibu. I got to I got a shout out. Do you know the comedy writer Meryl Marco? I don't think so. She was a Letterman writer way back in the day. Oh, okay. You know, that name's ringing a bell. I think, I think I've heard her as a guest on things in the past. She lives across the street from Bob Dylan and has written on, I guess, maybe like her blog or Tumblr or something about his Christmas decorations every year. <laughs> uh, can you elaborate on that a little? The only, the only like, What are they like? Uh, significant, I would say. And then I remember in like 2019, he got a manger set. This makes me so happy. This is definitely the guy who made Christmas in the heart. Yeah. Yeah. This guy loves Christmas. Jesus. Yeah. Um, no, I've never seen Dylan, yeah, wow. never seen Dylan out there. Um, I'm sorry. Like you said living across the street from Bob Dylan. And it's actually amazing to me that Bob Dylan even lives on a street. I just imagine like he just lived in some secluded compound in Malibu. It's hard. It's kind of hard to describe, but there's a place there called Point Doom. D-U-M-E. And it's kind of the top of the hill and the peak of Malibu. Malibu sort of goes out to a point. And there's a lot of crazy houses up there. And yeah, he's got a little compound of land up there, but it is sort of in a neighborhood. Interesting. I've only been to Malibu once, so I only have kind of like a... Yeah, not, like not the greatest like memory of it, you know, but it is kind of a, a weird and special place. You get that just kind of passing through. Well, you, I mean, I don't need to tell you. It's also a thing that gets mentioned in pop songs all the time. Yes, like the famous song Malibu by Miley Cyrus. Hole. Oh, oh yes. Hole. But yes, ben Miley Cyrus. Uh, like the first thing I thought of was Hole. But yeah, there's a lot of them. Yeah. Like, uh, off the top of my head, there's also a Sonic Youth song called Malibu Gas Station. And also um, eating crab out in Malibu and Nobu. Mm. The Drake lyric. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a big uh, landmark in popular music. And a lot of people ended up there. Um, it's a very appealing place to be. I mean, it's the weather's beautiful. And one of the nice things about it, sort of like Topanga Canyon or Laurel Canyon, is it is that it's retained a little bit of its 70s charm. I mean, like, at one point, you know, Neil Young would just be hitchhiking around Malibu in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, that that, that is definitely something I, I picked up from it. And also just kind of felt like a very distinct place beyond this being maybe a little out of time um it you know in, in thinking in terms of new york city which has been my home for like the vast majority of my life now it just makes me think of like all the spots that are kind of like an outer boroughs that have been essentially the same for like you know up to 60 plus years there's a very and what, yeah. when you go to those spots you there it's a feeling of uh 
if not time travel, but you know, being uh, in in some place that uh, has been kind of static in some way. And I felt I was really lucky because the room that I rented there, I lived with a 70 year old woman who was born and raised in Malibu. And her father was the first doctor in the town. So (laughs) she was on a bunch of local committees who were committed to keeping Malibu the little weird old town that it had always been. Um, I don't know if you're there. There's a little bit of a weird history with the town, which is that Malibu was owned by one woman until 1938. The the entire town. Mrs. Malibu. (laughs) Yes. Mrs. No, her name was May Ringe. And she was very protective of the place. and, And it does have like a little bit of a, weird old kind of like cowboy spirit to it yeah well that explains at least part of what would draw bob dylan and neil young mm-hmm. this way does is, is rod stewart a malibu guy or is he just more of an la guy he's more la um but they spend a lot of time in malibu like a lot of people just come out there like I mean, it, it's it, if you're there at the right time, it's it really can be like paradise. It's a it's a really great spot. Yeah, I guess if you just live on the west side, it's just like one of the places you can yeah. just go to. Oh, Matthew, everybody wants to hear us talk about traffic. Should we talk? About, let's talk about traffic on the west. I, I mean, I don't drive, nor do I live I, in Los Angeles. I just understand the fundamental problem of east versus west yes. in Los Angeles. Yes. <laughs> but uh, oh, God. Wait, so uh, what would Rod order? Um, that's a great question. Uh, well, he would come in at strange times to watch his favorite soccer team play. So it would be like a random Wednesday afternoon. And I do remember one time, I actually really have fond feelings towards his wife who really enjoyed a cocktail that I made for her. And then uh, I ended up making it for them uh, kind of all day that they were there. That's my memory of it. Well, what drink was that? Do you recall? Sure. I was going to see the Rolling Stones the next night. So I called it the Tumbling Dice. Oh, nice. Um, it, the place I worked, I had basically had to come up with a different drink every day. So it's... It pushes a weird creative part of my brain that I was like, oh, well, I actually do kind of like naming stuff and coming up with uh, ideas like that. And then, yeah, you know, like his wife liked it enough that she came over and like took a picture of the cocktail. That That's usually my goal as a bartender. I want to make a drink that somebody wants to take a picture of. OK, so you're, so you're going for beauty as well as a kind of a flavor profile You're going for the whole the whole experience of a cocktail. Well, I mean, the place I'm talking about that, you know, this spot out in Malibu, it's like you're out on a pier, you're out, you're out on a deck right by the pier and it's um, it's a beautiful spot. So, you know, one part of living in Los Angeles is that you have to get used to the fact that people like stick, take their camera out all the time and take a picture of everything. So, yeah, I get it. You know, if I, if, <laughs> if I do a little dehydrated fruit on top of the drink and it makes it pretty, that's, you know, it's a very easy thing to do and it, and it improves people's experience. It's it's showmanship. Yeah, of course. So, OK, wait. Do, so what's in a tumbling dice? Like what do you re- remember the basics of that drink? I remember why I called it that. It's because instead of using ice cubes, I had frozen pieces of watermelon to use as ice cubes and it kind of looked like red dice. 
Oh, yeah, that is clever. Yeah. What was the base spirit? Probably vodka. Probably vodka would be my guess. Yeah. I, there are certain drinks Wait, I love. So- I, th- there are certain drinks I love making. Like, I've noticed there's a lot of talk in, like, New York media about espresso martinis. Right, right. The like, the, the all bartenders hate making espresso martinis. I actually think they're they're super easy and delicious. And um, if somebody wants to have an espresso martini instead of doing cocaine, I encourage that behavior. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess I mean, if you have the espresso handy, like, what's the problem? Yeah, and um, I'm a night coffee person too. I know a lot of people don't, but I'll have coffee at night. Like, not even a decaf. You're just going full. Yeah, I'll have a I'll on. have a couple like diner coffee at night. Yeah, that's not that strong. Yeah. <laughs> Brewed like three days earlier. It's fine. <laughs> Oh, man. So being relatively new to cocktails, like what was the learning curve on getting to that point where you felt the confidence that, oh, yeah, I can just improvise. I can make something up. Well, let me ask you a question. Do you do you like to drink? Yeah. OK. Um, I think that's an important question because I'm, I'm going to give you a real bartending secret here. It's kind of all the same shit. Like if you take two ounces of any alcohol, one ounce of lime juice and one ounce of sugar or simple syrup, you can make basically every drink. Wow. Not even bringing bitters into it. No, uh, that's a two ounces of alcohol with lime and sugar is a gimlet. It's a margarita. It's a daiquiri. They're all the same thing. And it's really about balancing sweet and sour. That's the most important thing. Right. And like you put, you make it a, you give it whiskey. It's a sour. Yeah, exactly. Same thing. Um, and so, so that's a whole, right. So like, yeah, this thinking of, um, I remember I was reading about like, uh, like the, what is it? Like the, just like the, the five mother cocktails or something to that effect. Yeah. Right. And so, yeah, if you, if you know how to make those, you can make all of them. Yeah, and how much fun you want to have with it. Like, I love margaritas, and I noticed that a lot of people recent, maybe in the last year or so, have been drinking a lot of spicy margaritas. So I infuse my tequila with uh, chili peppers, and I'm sure you'll be happy to hear it's called Sweet Chili Heat. Yes, yes, famously. Like, you, you were kind of uh, in collaboration with the Time Crisis guys. A little bit, yeah. We, a little. What I did was yeah. I basically made something that if you put a little splash of this spicy stuff into a margarita, it would make it kind of perfect. Um, it was sort of like a concentrated chili tequila. So do you do a lot of infusion kind of stuff? Um, I do, and I also do a lot of uh pre-batching or barrel aging like if i know somebody if i know it's going to be a night where a lot of people are drinking old fashions i'll take all the ingredients and put it into a barrel at the beginning of the day um and it'll actually improve the taste of it for all that stuff to sit in the barrel all day and then all i have to do is untap the barrel when i'm ready for it oh so so it's like uh, making batch drinks yeah and 
as I was telling you before we started recording, I have kind of a day job bartending. And then at night I work a lot of very strange private events. <laughs> and I'm sure you can't really mention a lot about those strange private events. Uh, that is true. Uh, I will tell you that I am <laughs> whatever whatever you feel comfortable yeah. saying. I'm working at a, a party at the house where they recorded uh, Blood Sugar Sex Magic soon. Oh, that's gonna be fun. Um, <laughs> Just to pick up that sort of psycho sexy vibe. Yeah. Um. And when you go to something that's uh that's one of these private parties, especially this time of year, they usually want to have one like themed cocktail. So I'll make that in advance and same kind of thing. It'll start to taste better the longer the ingredients sit together. Um, and then I, I didn't actually realize that that was a, a thing for cocktails. I mean, that's something I know that is true for like soups sure. or sauces, but I guess essentially it's the same kind yeah, of thing. Well, the only thing you have to do is watch the sugar level. So if you know you're going to pre-batch it, you put half as much sugar as you were planning on. And it start, kind of starts to get sweeter over time. And yeah, so a lot of the job is just like planning in advance. And um, I used, like I said, I used to be an office manager and I realized a lot of it is kind of the same thing. It's all about being organized ahead of time, having your sort of mise en place set up the way it needs to be set up and making sure anybody you're working with also has their stuff set up. Yeah, have one on me of that sweet, sweet chili heat. Oh yeah, let's take it deep with that sweet, sweet chili heat. Dead night in the Dina at the old town pub. Two sets at a beer bar, we're drinking mostly Are you a talkative bartender? It really depends on where I am. Um, at the place where I bartend during the day, I have guests who come in every single day. We talk sports. We talk life stuff. And then at these freelance bartending jobs, I'm usually just trying to get out the door. Yeah, that makes yeah. sense. So, yeah, but like, but when you're like a bartender, bartender, like, do you get to do any of like the this feels very dated. It feels very like seventies, eighties, but the thing of like the bartender who is like the confidant to the, uh, to the regulars. Well, it's funny you mentioned that because I was just looking, I do try to write down at least every notable interaction I have at the bar, uh, in a, in a little notebook that I have. And yeah, I've had that to the level. I've had people sit down to me, sit down at the bar and tell me they're going to kill themselves. Oh, God. Like, how do you handle that? Especially in a situation where, like, you're a bartender. Yeah. And by the way, I apologize for just jumping on a heavy topic like that. Uh, No, no, um, it's fine. Well, in the one of the particular cases that happened to me, it's happened to me twice. One of them felt a little bit more like a, a sad guy just being sad about a breakup. But the other one, 
the guy started telling me about what his plan was for the rest of the day. And I found out that him and his girlfriend were staying in the hotel where I was bartending. So I had my manager go to get his girlfriend from the room and say like, Hey, this guy seems like he's not doing well. And he's talking about taking his own life. I think we need to do something. So he actually ended up leaving with her and I got an email from him about a week later sent to the hotel, just kind of saying thank you or whatever. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty heavy. It was, that was one of the most painful. Yeah, that, that was, that, I, I imagine I kind of sat with you for days. Oh yeah, for sure. Oh man. Like that's, you know, it, it's on one hand, it's good to hear that, in some ways like that kind of communication is still exists, but for it to be so heavy, like I was kind of expecting like, Oh man, like, you know, should I break up with my girlfriend or, you know, something more like There's that. There's a lot of that. Um, and then the flip side of that coin is sometimes people want to come to a bar and talk to a bartender about bartending and about like making drinks. And I can think of almost nothing more boring than that. <laughs> like maybe maybe so, the guest is a amateur bartender at home <laughs> and they have yeah. a lot of thoughts about it and i'm usually just trying to make people happy with the drink as quickly as possible so working at some different bars and, and things like that do you like, what are the kind of dynamics you see in a bar now do you see people who are strangers talking to each other? Um, I'm just thinking of like in my experience, I feel like maybe, maybe this could be like a New York city thing to some extent, but it doesn't seem like people go to bars necessarily to meet people as much as they used to. It's more just you go there to talk to people that you already know, whether you're going on a date or, you know, you have a group of friends or whatever. Sure. Well, I, I do go to a bar about once a week and it's usually centered around a karaoke situation. Um, So I would say that there is definitely less strangers talking to each other than there was pre pandemic. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm just even thinking like pre (laughs) like pre and post uh, uh, smartphones. Oh yeah. I, I don't know. I feel like, I do feel like LA is a more social city in that regard. Like, um, you know, I feel like I'm at a slight disadvantage cause I smoke cigarettes. So when I'm at a bar, uh, people generally, it's like in Los Angeles, you're the, mo- the least popular person on the planet. If you smoke cigarettes until about 9 PM. And then you're the most popular person on the planet. <laughs> And a lot of people who say they never smoke cigarettes end up bumming three or four off me in a night. And uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I think I think whether or not smartphones affect things in the bar, I don't know. Because I would say that some of my favorite moments in the bar are when I have a customer who wants to show me something funny they saw on their phone. So there's a good side to it, too. <laughs> yeah. I think there's just like things that I'll just watch that are kind of set in the past and you'll just have people talking to each other, uh, just meeting each other and talking to random people. And I, I enjoy doing that, but I think uh, in my experience, like it, it feels like there's a lot of times you can go to places and 
people don't really want that. You can kind of sense a vibe that people don't want to be talked to. Sure. Or they don't want like an intermingling of groups. Yeah. And it's always very awkward when there's like maybe three friends catching up and then some random guy at the bar by himself who's trying to like, you know, drunkenly maybe try to buy them around or something. And it's, it can be really uncomfortable sometimes. And a huge part of my job is like trying to alleviate those situations. Like what, how would you diffuse that particular situation? Would you just be like, no, just leave just you know, because I mean, you're also talking a guy out of buying like three drinks. Sure. Not. And it's like the people getting them couldn't be less happy to get them. Okay. I, actually, I'll give you a good story and it, it will be another celebrity name drop for you. Yeah, we love it. We we love celebrity name drops. That's what I mean. That's what we like I, about I, look, Hollywood and California. I would encourage people to just on a fundamental level to try to divest from celebrity culture because a lot of celebrities are really terrible anyway. But um, it's true. It it's used true. to really bother me when I worked in Malibu that people would try to buy dinner for Pierce Brosnan. Hmm? Like as like a hat tip, like, oh, I'm here in Malibu. Wait, so, so wait, I guess like Pierce Brosnan is a regular. At the I wouldn't place? call him a regular, but he was in a few times when I worked there. And it's, I think, pretty close to where he lives. And OK, but people to see him, they see him, they clock him like and like the thought that consistently comes up is I must buy food for James Bond. There's yeah. no way and, he has the money. For and that. I wouldn't say the person buying it is like some malibu local it's somebody who's visiting from somewhere else who's excited to be in malibu and can't believe they're in the same restaurant as james bond and i understand the urge to want to buy him the meal but it is a completely pointless gesture on all fronts like if you want a picture with the guy you could probably just ask him or not like that depends whether or not you're a rude person or not but you don't need to buy a rich guy dinner yeah I, I i can say pretty yeah i can say i've never had that impulse to spot someone and be like i must buy them Matt, i never had that money <laughs> I, I, I it's the least i can do for them i i love james bond yeah. movies he's my favorite james bond i should tell him he's my favorite james and bond. i would say good on him because i think what he did was decline and then go over and offer to take a picture with them, which is probably what they wanted anyway. Yeah. Well, good for him. I, I mean, I feel like I, I've really internalized the, the New York City approach to celebrities where it's like you just pretend they're not there. Yeah. Um, You just treat them like people who just don't want to be bothered. Yeah, my I've I've had the same best friend since fifth grade, my friend Mike. And his wife, when when they were dating, she went to NYU and they would see Lou Reed around. This is, you know, I'm old, I'm old so this is a while ago. Uh, and yeah. yeah, he never talked to him, but he's like, yeah, I saw him. I saw Woody Allen. Like, just there were a few people where it was just like, yeah, you see him and you don't say anything. And I feel like the more meaningful the celebrity is, the more I really don't want to talk to them. Yeah, well, you know, but... I mean, I, I mean, so I, I live in Park Slope, or at least I do right now. Um, I'm in the process of trying gotcha. to move. 
Um, but I live near two very or maybe three like very meaningful celebrities to me. One of which you've interviewed. This is uh, Guy oh, Picciotto yeah. from Fugazi, who I will just kind of see randomly on the street or in a supermarket. Yeah. And the other one, uh, the big one is uh, Chris Claremont, who is kind of like the major architect of all the X-Men mm. stuff. And and I also see Mark Eibold, who is in Pavement and Sonic Youth, relatively frequently. You'll just kind of see him like skateboarding Man, around. I, I see so many guys in Los Angeles who look like Mark Eibold. <laughs> yes, but I'm okay, seeing okay. the real one. I, I've been to a, a crazy amount of Pavement and Sonic yeah. Youth shows. Yeah, nobody's um, nobody's doubting your Sonic Youth or Pavement bona fides. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, but those are exactly the kind of people who I do not want to yeah. bother. Well, I'll say that I've had some really good experiences meeting people um, who I consider heroes and some really bad ones. Dan, you, you lived in you lived in California for at least what like five years six now? Years. Six years. Yeah. Tell me about how your relationship with California music has changed or evolved or whatever in that time. Because California music is really yeah. a thing. Well, I think we should start with a number one on the California music list. I actually worked at a hotel in California and I now love the song Hotel California. <laughs> Uh, it took yes. moving out here. But, you know, the biggest difference is you're driving and you're in your car. And I sort of had this. My teenage years were driving around listening to music in my car. And then I had a long, long gap where I lived in New York and Philadelphia, took the subway, didn't really have a car. And now I have a car in Los Angeles and I listen to music probably 10 times more than I did when I lived in New York. Really? So were you never really like a... Walking around with headphones? Guy? Um, yeah, sometimes. But I, I usually would walk around without headphones, which might sound psychotic. But uh, yeah, I I feel like I just I love listening to music in the car. It's where I feel, feel most comfortable listening to music. I want to say that doesn't sound psychotic, by the way. I want to say that just sounds like something I would never think. Walk to around do. without headphones for two hours. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I yeah, I almost like i mean a lot of times i'm going outside to listen to the headphones yeah well that's that's true sure <laughs> yeah i guess sitting, i, I don't have yeah. a record collection really the way most people do like i don't sit at home and listen to records it doesn't happen very often so what music do you feel is better in cars 
or specifically in California, because it's also like, I mean, California kind of has its own kind of light. Yeah, for sure. Um, There are people who who make pop music now who I think capture it a little bit. Like, I'd say I'm kind of a pretty I'd say I'm a fan of like the last few John Mayer singles. Interesting. That's like him kind of like going into this kind of self-conscious 80s i'd say starting with that song new light he was starting to tap into like a california vibe and you know he's obviously also kind of in the grateful dead or you know the version of the grateful dead that exists now which is him also kind of succumbing to a very california thing yeah i mean here music is I don't know. Sometimes I will like find myself talking to people about music and, and I'll find that they don't like the same thing about music that I do. And some people don't like depressing music at all. And I think there's like a natural inclination out here to lean towards like music that makes you feel good. In, in... Or at least yeah. like a good vibe. And uh, I do love the tasteful palette of seventies, California music, you know, Eagles. I'm a huge Linda Ronstadt fan. Um, and, you know, thinking about Linda Ronstadt hanging out in Malibu with governor Jerry Brown in the seventies is a very specific kind of (laughs) California vibe. Um, and, we just don't get governors like Damn, that anymore. Got, some governor's got a date like Lana Del Rey or something. Yeah, or like a, like a yeah, Selena Gomez. Um, but I would say there is also like, for me personally, a pretty great radio presence here in Los Angeles. Specifically, like a good rap station that plays good rap music. Uh, and also... Uh, there seems to be like a real fascination in modern country music with California as well. Like 50% of the songs that come out mention California on commercial country hmm. radio. Like what, what's a song that you feel is particularly good that does that uh, on the countryside? Uh, yeah. Well, there there's a big song right now that has a lyric about uh, about getting all-inclusive margaritas in Malibu and not, and then and then not knowing how to pay <laughs> rent this month. And uh, actually the best one I can think of is John Party, who's a, a country guy who I really like, P-A-R-D-I. Um, he has a song called It Ain't Always the Cowboy that I love. And it's it's about a girl. Wait. It's about a girl leaving for the <laughs> leaving leaving the country for the big city. If memory serves, I think because okay, I'm I'm a big fan of Time Crisis. We've already mentioned that a few times, but weren't you the person who brought the song "One Margarita" by Luke Bryan to um, their radar? No, Am I, I think wrong about that. I think that may have came up. I I was the one, I did suggest to Jake that we that they do um, uh, country top five, which might be where it came up. Okay, and then it was yeah. just one of the songs because that <laughs> that is that is a that's well, a great that guy, song. I, I really like guy, that one. That guy, um, John, the, you know, Luke Bryan can can really oh, hit it at the yeah. park. That guy, John, that guy, John Party, who I love, has a song called 
tequila little time with you. Pardon me, I don't mean to pry. I saw the tears falling from your eyes and I thought, you're too pretty not to wear a smile. Hope you don't mind if I sit down for a I mean, the the country guys just know how to make a fun song about drinking in a way that people other genres just can't yeah. compete with. Like, I mean, God, no one in rock is writing songs about that. Certainly not now. Um, you, even like the most hedonistic guys aren't doing that. And and rap doesn't really tend to be a very alcohol centric oh, genre. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna take issue with one thing about that. There are a couple of well, other than well, drank. No, you know that the are you familiar with uh Don Julio nineteen forty two? No. Wait, wait, wait. What the, the film me in Don on Julio nineteen forty two is a very expensive version of Don Julio that they that they release. And it is in a beautiful dark brown bottle, and you notice it right on the shelf, and it's usually in Los Angeles between thirty five and forty dollars a shot. But okay. 1942 is mentioned in like a ton of Drake songs, future songs. Everybody mentions 1942. And now I guess I never really put it together that that's and what now, that was. Because I, I know I sure. know I've heard. That. Um, and that is now basically impossible to get in any bar. If you had a bottle of that how much would you feel forced to charge a shot of like, would you have to go over the price? I mean, I mentioned, because let's say so you scarce? were, is this, is this a puppy Van Winkle situation? In, in miniature that they'll make more and they'll be fine. But right now it's running short around town, but things do take hmm. on that kind of quality. Like Louie, which is, um, depending on where you buy it, like $1,500 a bottle, like is also something that gets shot, shouted out a lot. I'm also remembering right now that my, my friends, Molly and Chris, who do the show and introducing like their, their most recent episode is about T-Pain's uh, cocktail book. Oh, cool. Do you, have you heard about this? No, but I'll definitely check it out. I like him a lot. Do you remember when he was on Time Crisis? <laughs> I don't actually. I like, but I'm, but um, yeah, they they did an episode, uh, or the first half of the episode is just talking about T Pain. But then the second part is like talking to the guy that he did the book with. This guy's name is Maxwell Britton, but it's a pretty good book. I remember looking at it at their house. Nice. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a very uh, and the, the part of the concept of that book was he chose like fifty songs that he had been on or worked on or produced. And they made cocktails for each of those songs. Which is, I guess, sort of what you were doing before, even just like with that, yeah. the, the tumbling dice. Yeah, I like 
it's kind of fun when you go like one of the things about the freelance bartending is that you go and sometimes an hour before they're like, oh, this is a Christmas party and they want to do this specific kind of drink. So you have to work really fast and get something together. Hmm. So, so, so you could just have people throw a, a thing at you and you could just figure it out. Sure. Like. I bet I bet we could probably have a funny Twitter thread where we came up with like band themed cocktails. Right. I mean, okay. So let's. Uh, well, I can't. I will not improv with you right now. I'm too tired. I just got off of work. <laughs> Another time, then. It's a whole episode of just like Daniel. Okay. Uh, uh, this the first thing that comes to mind is like Vampire Week because we're just talking about time crisis. Yes. Okay. Uh, you have to make. A, you have to make Harmony Hall. You have to make a Harmony Hall right now. <laughs> You're gonna get a four thousand word email from me tonight with all these different, all different band cocktail ideas. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I know, like, like some some bars that are kind of near the Barclays Center will have like something like, yeah, come in for like our nine inch nails special. Well, you know, um, there's a lot. There are now a lot of musicians who are like tied into booze brands. Go, expand on that. Bob Dylan has a whiskey. Yeah, that makes Heaven's sense. Door. Yep, that also it's makes very sense. tasty. Yeah, I, I can't imagine Dylan would sign off on something that's crap. Yeah, um, Kenny Chesney has a rum. That feels Blue right. Blue chair rum. Um, and then every once in a while, you'll see these like. There's a lot of like beer brands that'll do a thing for like a metal band or whatever. I see that for indie bands too. Yeah. There's like various forms of rock band will get their beat their kind of their micro brew. Yeah, I'm 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 so divested from like beer culture in general. I think it's very corny. Yeah. yeah. Well, you're you're a cocktail. Man. No, you're like Tom. I, Cruise. I felt that way before I was a bartender. <laughs> uh, if somebody wants to talk to me about their home <laughs> brewing setup, I pretty much just like glaze over. I feel like I default to beer in a lot of situations. Yeah, but do you yeah. like beer? Do you like fancy beer? Yeah, but you know what? I think the thing that I've found over time is that the most satisfying beer is often like the most basic yeah. beer. So, you know, like a Miller High Life or a Narragansett, like things like that will often be like more satisfying than just some like overwrought IPA from like some micro. Oh, I love overwrought IPA. That's a great one. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, I mean, I, I can enjoy that. I mean, I mean, especially during periods of time where I was like kind of broke. Yeah. Like that would be my move at a bar is to order just like some IPA and just sip it slowly. Yeah. Because it would just be like the best bang for the buck and it, it would just be bitter enough that I would not drink it quickly. Yeah, that's I, I always order Jameson on the rocks at a bar. So I guess I sort of have a different way to the same thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, that's another yeah. one. Like, I, I think I would probably order Makers sure. over Jameson, yeah. though they're both fine. I think I, I just like I think Makers has a rounder. Flavor. But I agree, I agree yeah. with you 100 percent about beer. I mean, sure, I've enjoyed really nice beers before, but a really freaking cold beer after like a day on the beach, no matter what it is, if it's a Coors Light, it's going to taste great. Yeah, I mean, and the, but there's just also something there's ever for like a thing that's like a, it's a beer flavored beer. Mm -hmm. 
know, or God, I, I recently, I can't remember what the hell situation I was in, but it was just like, Oh, that's right. I was like last weekend. I was, I was at a diner and like, they, they had like two beers that you could either get a Bud Light or a Heineken. I was like, okay, I'll have a Heineken. And a Heineken is a perfectly, it's a distinctive beer. Cause it always had that kind of like weird skunkiness yeah. to it. But it's always it's like that's a. I, I'm pretty sure the first beer I ever had was a Heineken. It's good. So I think there is some nostalgic quality sure. to it. And also, it's pretty similar to like a Stella. They they all taste good. Yeah, yeah, good. yeah. St- like a Stella is probably like the more milder version yeah. of it. But yeah, right. And like I mean, when I was like, I mean, we're we're about the same age. So, I mean, so like in that kind of like late '90s, early aughts era, like Stellas were kind of like a. Were, I think very ubiquitous. Oh, yes. I don't a little know bit why. of a Frasier vibe to this, this the Stella ad campaign of that era, <laughs> like rich guy beer. <laughs> okay, so I, I just mentioned the show and introducing, but I, I want to men- ask you something. Uh, one of the hosts of that show, my friend Molly, uh, she kind of got on this tip with D Serrano. Yeah. She was thinking of like the old D Serrano ads from the mid aughts. Do you, do you have any memory of this? Yes. Uh... Right. Where like someone comes in, there's like a whole rush of people coming into these sexy bartenders and they're all being like, I, I'll have a, I'll have a D Serrano martini. Yes. I, I feel like... How often do you ever have anyone ask for D Serrano? Very, very rarely. Like how often do you ever touch that stuff well i'll tell you something kind of interesting i think at least um most of the places i've worked previously to my current job have been mostly white people uh and i currently work at a private club that was founded by a bunch of people who left another private club because they felt that it had racist policies so a huge percentage of my clientele is black and I've just noticed that I'm making often a different style of drink. And Di Serrano does come out more often now. And maybe it's just um, the way that. Oh, I'm, I'm thinking of like, well, what would that mean? I would imagine that'd be a lot more Hennessy because Hennessy has always been like heavily marketed to the black audience. Um, that and I would say flavored vodka. Yeah. Um, but Di Serrano actually is quite nice and I, I've always liked amaretto. <laughs> you know what you know what I really like it for? It's the Italian American to me, Daniel. <laughs> you're you're familiar with the uh the Cadillac margarita? No, what 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 is in that? Well a margarita is usually you know lime, sugar, tequila, and a lot of people put triple sec in it, but I don't. Um, and a Cadillac margarita is where you float about one ounce of Grand Marnier on top of the margarita it's sort of a different color and you're sort of sipping through a thicker layer of this orange flavored liqueur and di serrano works beautifully as a float on top of a margarita all right everyone kind of give that a shot little little nutty flavor added into the citrus is good i remember like there's another thing just thinking about on like okay, my earliest working experiences i, I do remember that like a like an amaretto sour was a move for a lot of people for a long time kind of in that late 90s early aughts zone do you yeah i mean some people really don't have a taste for whiskey like you know maybe 
one of the first times you got drunk, you were drinking whiskey and it didn't agree with you. Some people get really turned off by the smell and taste of whiskey. So like an amaretto sour is very similar to a whiskey sour. It's just like a different set of tasting notes and much sweeter. Much yeah. Much sweeter. So, so if somebody's like, I like sweet drinks, an amaretto sour is a great thing to make. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I like a, because I mean, I have like my own little bar at home where I'll just kind of improvise once in a while, but I do like amaretto as kind of a, a mixer with whiskey. Dude, throw a little amaretto whiskey in your coffee. Oh, as as like a brunch drink with some whipped cream on top. I I, I do not have whipped cream on hand, but yeah, you can make it very easily. I guess. <laughs> I, I make it by hand. yeah. Okay, but yeah, but that hand. is something in the planted a seed planted in the audience that they should run with that one. But I do, I do think that the De Serrano ads are interesting because I feel like they helped to further along the idea of the like bartender guy wearing like a vest and having his sleeves cuffed up and maybe wearing some like dumb Robin hood hat or something like that. Like a very steampunky kind of bartender look thing still persists for sure oh god that really is a direct line that kind of you just follow that thread and you're just in like that kind of like 2010 2013 kind of mode yeah everything kind of looks like steal my sunshine video a little bit very glossy sort of like yeah well there is that kind of that period in the in the 10 somewhere where like it's kind of like is this a bartender or is this a guy who is in Mumford and Sons? You know, that kind of aesthetic. Yeah, it's it's one of the reasons I was very hesitant to get into bartending because I, I'm not nuts about the like. Yeah, that sort of like vest and cuffs bartender kind of thing where he's the bartender is spraying things over top of your drink and all that. There is a time and place for that. But in general, that stuff is kind of nonsense. Do you ever fancy yourself a mixologist? Um, no, I would never call myself that. <laughs> I was hoping you would say that. <laughs> but, but sometimes I get booked. I get yeah. booked for jobs, and when I get the pay stub, it I get paid as a mixologist. So I guess I don't really care. Um, yeah, I mean, w- w- when money changes hands, everything's a little more lenient. You can call me whatever you want, buddy. Uh, but yeah, I don't know. I I just think if somebody is sitting down and telling me they really want something where I'm like focusing on giving them a spectacular different kind of drink, I can do that. But that is rarely what people want. They want a great drink fast. I'm, I'm thinking of some of the, uh, the, the nicer cocktail bars in the immediate vicinity of where I live. And a lot of them will have this thing on the menu where they'll be like, hey, just just talk to us and, you know, we'll figure out a drink for you. We'll make it up for you. Yeah. Do you ever do that? I would be really annoyed if it said that on the menu, but that is a lot of what I do, especially. And I'm actually glad to see this. I've noticed in the past couple of months, way more people asking for non-alcoholic cocktails. I walked by a place, uh, I think it was in Prospect Heights, like just the other day that this recently opened. That was a whole uh, liquor store that was non-alcoholic. There are some really good, basically fake spirits like that don't have alcohol that 
give you the same impression as if you're drinking gin or vodka made by a company called Sipsmith um, that are really good. If, if and, and I use those a lot. Like I can, I try to make somebody who gets a non-alcoholic drink feel like they're getting something special, like better, like, you know, something better than if they, than they just ordered like a glass of cranberry juice or something like that. Right. Because I feel like ultimately like a good cocktail is not necessarily about just giving you booze. It's about, you know, uh, an interesting flavor profile. It's a, you know, it's, it's a culinary thing. Yeah. And yeah. So, so it doesn't have, so yeah. So I think that like it not having to be about booze is really important. You know, it, it makes sense. It's not like, you know, defeating a purpose in the way that, you know, I, I think like when I think of like, like vegan meats and stuff like that. Like, I think sometimes that can feel, you know, illogical to me in some way where it's like, I don't know if I, I think if I was just going to give up like meat entirely, I would just like really commit to doing so. Yeah. But like, I don't, I don't see like that as a half measure with like the non-alcoholic cocktails. Yeah. And it's just nice, especially because I, I tend to work day shifts at the place that I'm a regular bartender. So People are at a business meeting, right? Like maybe they want, maybe they want to do. Something. People aren't trying to get hammered necessarily at sometimes, two p.m. Sometimes they are. I imagine some people are, yeah. but you know, yeah. And you know, it's like I always worry when somebody comes in the afternoon and orders like a Long Island iced tea. <laughs> How often do people order Long Island iced teas in your experience? I consider it an automatic red flag. I mean, that is also a complicated ass drink. In some ways, but in reality, have, have you ever made one before? No, no. I just know there's a lot of things in it. You literally take every single alcohol in the well, except for scotch, and pour a tiny little bit of each one in a glass and then cover it in Coca-Cola. That's the whole thing. Okay, so it's basically like going to a 7-Eleven and just like throwing down every soda. It's a half ounce of gin, vodka, tequila, rum, whiskey. Uh, and then Coca-Cola, and then the traditional garnish is an orange slice. I've never had one. What is the flavor like? It just sounds incoherent. It sounds like you're trying to get fucked up. <laughs> uh, and that's what it tastes like, too. I mean, it's just, it tastes like Coca-Cola with no carbonation and disgusting. Because, yes. I mean, a lot of those those alcohols are have like very contradictory flavors. Yeah, and you while. just put a little splash of lemon juice in it to kind of cut through all of it and it just tastes like a mess of alcohol and it's usually for somebody who's trying to get drunk. Yeah, I mean that'll do the trick. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you only need really need one of them, right? Sure. But sometimes people order a double and then you got to give them two right away. <laughs> oh god. A <laughs> double long on iced tea. Like that yeah, you like there's <laughs> yeah that's that's unhinged yeah. double a double long island sounds like a um hold steady song waiting to happen i feel like the I, I i have no idea what the proper origin of the long island iced tea is but there could just be no place in america that we better served by having that reference in the name of that drink i agree 100 percent. it's perfect that is such an incredibly long island vibe to get that hammered yeah have you uh what is there like 
trying to think of like Malibu drinks. I feel like there is a Malibu. Well, this is like a Malibu rum. Yeah, it's coconut flavored rum. Okay. Are there c- coconuts in Malibu? No. <laughs> yeah. No, there are not. There's, I'm sure, I don't know. I'm maybe sure some suntan lotion. Maybe some rich person. Maybe like Flea has a coconut tree or something like that. But I don't think there are any coconuts growing organically in Malibu. Right. Uh, like, yeah, I mean, coconuts aren't native to California at all, right? No, palm trees aren't native to California. Right. I remember like learning about that, that someone just basically planted a bunch and they just kind of have to maintain them. Yeah, the Spanish, uh, the Spanish uh, missionaries. Yeah, I mean, it's a great aesthetic. Yeah, of course. Um, it's Trapper Keeper aesthetic. <laughs> Wait, so do you currently live in Malibu? No, I live in Chinatown. Wait, where? so that's kind of like, oh God, I feel like I've been, no, I've been to Koreatown. Where's Chinatown in, in, in uh, Los Angeles? It's downtown adjacent. It's right next to downtown. Okay. Yeah, I work. The place I work is on the fifty-first floor of a skyscraper downtown. Wow. So I, yeah, I just I live right near my work. It's very convenient. It's nice. I miss Los Angeles. I haven't been there in a few years. I'm I'm definitely going back. You gotta come out for you gotta come out for Primavera Festival. No, I'm coming out for Pavement. Oh, nice. I'm I'm going east. I'm going so east I, I know, like I I am definitely coming to California the year 2022. Nice. Uh, I'll probably try to be there at least a, for at least a three or four days at minimum. Well, we could go on a little, we could uh, go on a little um, Malibu music reality tour. I would love that. So, wait, what would be on a Malibu reality tour? First stop, <laughs> Lou Adler's house. Um, no, just I mean, there are some like kind of iconic spots. Um, Cher's house is these are things you can see from the highway driving past. It's not like a big deal. Um, yeah, you don't you don't have to like pull up down the street. No, um, Dr. Dre's house. And then are, these are all things you could just kind of see and be like, oh, yeah, that's that's the part of place. it that I would take you to. Is I, would, I mean, Dr. Dre's place must be crazy. It is. Um, I would take you to. Zuma Beach. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I would show you where the band had their recording studio and where Neil Young's house used to be in the 70s. And um, I can point up to Bob Dylan's house sort of from there. Yes, I would. <laughs> I I didn't I didn't know that Bob Dylan lived in Malibu lived until like relatively recently. Yeah. I think like oh, maybe a couple years ago I found out about that. And it just felt so weird to me, but it was like, yeah, I guess that's a good a place, a good as place as any for him. Let me. There's so much about him that makes no sense. I'll tell you one thing. Um, this is so. This is a Dylan story I heard secondhand. Uh, a friend of mine out there uh, co-owns a restaurant in Malibu, and this restaurant was hosting a birthday party for. Uh, George Clooney's wife. Okay. And Bob Dylan was supposed to come to this party. There were a lot of other famous people there. And he saw all the paparazzi and just like circled the party in his car a few times. And then apparently invited everybody to his house for the after party that he just invented that night because he didn't want to get out of the car. (laughs) 
So he was more comfortable to say he'll come to his place. That that's I don't know if the whole I don't know if the whole party, but I heard that that's what happened. Okay, so he he's very so ready. I mean, like, like this. I mean, it's, we're talking about Bob Dylan. He's a, he's an enigma. Yeah, and I think but even out there, there's he's... like so much about him. Like thinking about his day to day life is so odd. Yeah, like he must go to the Ralph's grocery store. Or at least he has someone sent to it. I mean, I'm thinking of like that song on his most recent album, which is really fantastic. It's, I think it's one of his his best ever, uh, "Rough and Rowdy Ways." But he has that line where it's like he says, "Like I, I, uh, I eat fast foods." And just even just thinking about Bob Dylan going to any fast food place is so weird to think about. But he's been on tour for like such an enormous chunk of his life that of course he has. Sure. He's had he's probably had every fast food you could think he of. He probably has strong opinions on like the Whopper. Yes. Like a like a Whopper on the East Coast is never as good as a Whopper in the Midwest. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah. It's but yeah, it's just he <laughs> I've only seen uh, one Bob Dylan show. I saw it uh, a few years ago, maybe like three or four years ago. And it was one of those things where like, I felt like I I, I should see Bob Dylan uh, while he's alive, while there's a possibility of doing so. But, you know, going to see that show, you're just kind of aware that like, oh, I'm witnessing a historical figure. This is like, if I could see like a Mark Twain reading. Yeah. You know, it's like, like a person of that kind of uh, historical enormity. Like I, I kind of felt the same thing when I saw like uh, when I've seen Paul McCartney a couple times. Yeah. Where it's like, oh, my God, this is a historical figure. I'm, I'm witnessing like one of the most famous men who's ever lived. Yeah. I saw Paul McCartney at Irving Plaza at that Valentine's Day show he played a few years ago where he randomly. Announced- How'd you get into that? He announced the show on Twitter that day. And I happened to be walking around Union Square at the time. And he said, the only place to get tickets for this show, this is on Twitter. He said, the only place to get tickets for the show is, box is at the box office. And I was like the ninth person there. Wow. What was it like seeing Paul McCartney in such a small place? I, I mean, I've seen him at Yankee Stadium and the Barclays Center. Um, yes. Just to elaborate a little bit, I was in the Whole Foods when I saw the tweet. And was like, oh, I should go around the corner. Um, yes. Well, basically across the square. I had a little bit of that same feeling of being like, I'm 50 feet away from the guy who wrote Let It Be. That's pretty insane. Yeah. Uh, and you could just name like 40 other major well, songs. He played Let Me Roll It, which is my favorite Paul McCartney song. Have you seen Licorice Pizza yet? No. Is it in the movie? Yes, and it's used beautifully. Good. I love that song. Yeah, it's, it's it's I think it's actually it kind of instantly became one of my favorite uses of a song, a famous song in a movie. Crazy drum part in that song. Yes, it's like it's this weird stutter to it that like as many times I've heard that song and I can never quite get it. Do you remember do you remember like when like Low and Dirty 3 were kind of coming up? Sometimes uh they would describe the drummer as sounding like they had thrown the drums down the stairs. Like that's sort of the let me roll it vibe. It just sounds like somebody like kind of going crazy on the drums. Yeah. Let me roll. It is such a weird and beautiful. What a great song. phrase too. Um, 
my heart is like like I can't tell you how I feel. My heart is like a wheel. Let me roll Let it. Let me to roll you. it. Yeah, I love that. standing out and then i just remember so i guess the way they did it for this one-off show was that the floor was general admission and then the balcony of irving plaza was all like vip so i just okay. remember looking up and seeing like meryl streep and uh <laughs> and, and lorne michaels rocking out this yeah that was kind of like i, I had that one experience where i saw uh, a, a radio ed show uh, that was kind of like announced day of a similar situation, but it was also full of VIPs in the balcony. And this was at the the nine thirty oh. club in Washington D.C. Uh, uh, let me stop you. And above me, let me stop you. This is, and above me is like Brad Pitt and, and the Jennifer Aniston just rocking. This out. is the canceled uh, Tibetan Freedom concert show, right? Yes, yes, I was at that. Yeah, yeah. Funny. I was at the, I was at the uh, the Tibetan Freedom concert the year before the New York one. Very good show. I was at that one too. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm, I was a uh, front row for one of the two days. You can see me squished against the fence in some of the Noel Gallagher and U2 footage. Oh my God, Daniel, we must've been like feet from each other. I was front row for U2 at that as yeah. well. Um, do you remember wow. that Noel Gallagher played Helter Skelter solo? Yes, I do. That And to, and to this day, that's the only time I've ever seen, uh, Noel or any any kind of oasis, I just missed every opportunity. Well, you know it'll come around again at some point. Yes, I feel like I, I, I've had a few conversations in the recent past where like, oh no, oasis never got. Are you kidding me? Like those guys are like the kayfabe on those guys is incredible. Like they have been amping up the 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 rivalry for years because they know that the more they do that, the more. They can just rake in the money when they when they finally decide to do it again, which is probably in like two years. They're probably going to do it for like the, the, the anniversary. Definitely. And maybe. I would just like to say, while it does sound like a cash grab, both of those guys have managed to put out some good music in their solo careers. Yeah, they Liam have recently. Um, very, I mean, a couple of those recent singles of his are like killer. Like which ones do yeah, that song is so beautiful, and all that you're dreaming of is really great too. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm just dying to see Oasis for real. Um, I, I really regret all the opportunities I could have had. I just was like, ah, yeah, 
I mean, I mean, granted, this was often during times where I was I didn't really have the money to throw at it. But yeah, I yeah. saw them. I mean, they just recently released like that live Nebworth, uh, you know, their, their famous Nebworth show. Have you have you listened to the the, the, the uh, live record yet? I had a bootleg of that back in the day. Yeah, it's widely bootleg. Yeah, that's so. I mean, you know yeah. the show, but it's like it's just kind of like them playing like nearly all of their classics uh, at the peak of their popularity. They're playing two hundred fifty thousand like, people in two days. Yeah, so in both shows, in either show, they're basically playing to like three giant stadiums at yeah. once, uh, which is just like insane to even just like fathom. Yeah, I was actually just talking to a friend of mine who's about to, who's doing a, a show with Oasis as the topic of her show. And she was telling me that she really wanted to talk to a British person as the guest because she wanted to understand like the cultural significance. Like, I don't know if you remember a couple of years ago, I played in an Oasis cover band for charity and we had to, I, 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 I know one thing and it's that you sing don't look back in anger. Oh, thanks. Well, um, we had a last minute guitar replacement and we found this British guy who basically came in and was like, I'm a guitarist and I'm British. Of course, I know all the Oasis solos. (laughs) Like, I don't think he even particularly liked Oasis. And he knew them all. Is this like an osmosis thing? We practiced together (laughs) once for about an hour. And then he nailed them at the show. It's just like, it's really part of a lot of a particular generation of British people's DNA, I think. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's really like an American equivalent experience. Um, maybe, maybe like maybe people our age with Nirvana or every, like a lot of people who would play guitar would be like, yeah, I, I can play like most of the Nirvana songs. Yeah. I mean, maybe you almost had it with like Van Halen briefly at some point, like where the idea that like a guitarist, like everybody who liked to play guitar was obsessed with this one guy. But the thing about Noel Gallagher yeah. is that all of his solos are like, they're easy to play, but just like all great musicians, like what makes them great is the sneaky little things they do to make them a little bit different. Yeah. And there's, there's just an attitude to how any of those songs are played or sung. Sure. And, and you know, as, as somebody who else who likes that band, like a lot of the criticism that was lobbied at them at the time and probably even now is like, yeah, I mean, like they certainly leaned into sounding like the Beatles a little bit, but they really, don't sound anything like the Beatles. No, they just they just mentioned Beatles lyrics, which was probably pretty smart because it let a lot of people in the door. I mean, it just was like an invitation to like you hear that opening keyboard riff and don't look back in anger. That's reminiscent of Imagine. And it's like people are instantly familiar with it, but then it goes off and does its own thing. I think that's pretty smart. Yeah. Well, you know, we had already talked about this. Let's let's talk about Oasis another sure. time. Yeah, because I think we both have a lot Probably to say about much, Oasis. Yes. Yeah, but uh, we'll put a pin in that. I think we'll wrap it up Beautiful. here. Daniel, how can people find you? How can people, uh, what should people look for? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Daniel Ralston, where I talk about the things that I have coming up. 
and my show in the Garden of Eden about the disappearance of Philip Taylor Kramer from Iron Butterfly will be out soon. I don't know exactly when. Yeah, keep an eye. Yeah, and also, Matthew, thank you so much for having me on and talking with me. Oh, always a pleasure, Doug. And uh, I'll take you on that Malibu tour soon. Yeah, looking forward to it. All right, buddy.